0: warriors in their own words, is brought to you by The Honor Project, committed to putting the heroes of our nation on record. This presentation is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. Al Ungerleiter is a true American hero. During his career in the U.S. Army, he saw combat in three wars, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. His first taste of battle came on June 6, 1944, on the beaches of Normandy during D-Day. In 1944,
1: in preparation for the invasion of Normandy what we call now Omaha Beach, I was assigned to Company L of the 115th Infantry Regiment of the 29th Infantry Division. And we were designated as the Second Assault Wave to Gwyn on D-Day behind our 116th Infantry Regiment was mostly Virginia National Guard. Ours was mostly Maryland National Guard. I joined the 29th Division and 115th in January of 1944, which was six months before the invasion. I was a platoon leader of the 3rd Platoon in Company L, of the 115th, and uh, we, I got so involved in training immediately training in the moors, along the moors of England, a lot of overnight, a lot of two- or three-day exercises. And then we had some practice landing uh, exercises off the coast of England. That's when it dawned on me, when we first time we first practiced landing we made, that we were going someplace. We didn't know where at the time, someplace along the coast of France, but we didn't know where it would be. And then it started to sink in that we were heading for... What, in my mind, would be the beginning of the downfall of the 3rd Reich. I was trying to weld my platoon, which is my main concern, into a good fighting unit, make sure they were in good physical condition, make sure that we train hard, give them chance at night and weekends to play a little bit and relax and see the English countryside but mainly it was training, get as hard and tough as we could because we knew it was not going to be easy once we landed in France. All these maneuvers were battalion size at least, and each battalion is made up of three rifle companies, a weapons platoon, and a headquarters platoon. And in each battalion there are three of these companies plus a heavy weapons company plus a headquarters company. And then that's the battalion fighting unit. And we were also occasionally working with the entire 115th Regiment. I don't recall any division maneuvers along the moors while I was with them during those six months, but I don't think it was really necessary. The main part was to get your regiment and your battalions and your companies into working with each other and, and in good fighting condition. Remember, they had been there since uh, October of 1942, and they had been doing this similar things during a good portion of that time, up until January '44, when I joined them. So initially it was a learning experience for me of how to get uh, onto a boat and off a boat, and I was following them. And then as we moved along further into my time there, I was able to point out some things I thought could, they could do better of moving more rapidly, being careful of what the, where their steps were, not falling someone were tripping and falling down as they got off. And to be more careful, and that's what we emphasized during the time I was there. We didn't think in terms of losses, except we knew some people probably wouldn't make it off the beach. Also, at that particular time, we didn't know whether we were going to be the assault force as the 116th was, or whether we'd be the backup force to them, or even a a regiment in reserve. It turned out that just a couple of days before, Uh, the day we learned that we were going to be the backup force to the 116th. We were called in, it was either five or six days before, it was around the 1st of June. And at that time we were briefed, we were shown where we were going. They didn't call it Omaha Beach at that time, they just said Normandy. And uh, we were all sworn to secrecy from that point on, and we were sealed in to what they called the staging area were near where we had been stationed and sealed in there until we actually got the order to move out and get on the boats. Uh, when we did get the order, we moved uh, onto this LCI. All of L Company was on this one landing craft infantry. And uh, <clears throat> originally the invasion was scheduled for the 5th of June, and that's when we started out and the sea was so rough. And we were carrying a barge behind us that suddenly whipped around and knocked a big hole into this LCI that we were on, and they had immediately pull into port. They slapped a couple of pieces of steel on there, and uh, back we were again. And then the order came down that we would not go in on the 5th, that they're going to try again on the 6th. And uh, it was an air of disappointment. We were ready to go. But we knew that the sea was rough. You could just We were bouncing up and down like a, a bobbin uh, in the water there. Uh, the Navy took good care of us, though. They fed us well. They provided entertainment on this little LCI, gave us books to read. There was a movie. Uh, my heart goes out to the Navy. They, they did everything they could to, to help us get the job done. An LCI, I don't know the total length, uh, I'd say not more than 60, 60, 70 feet long, and then it has two stairways or ramps that come down on, off the sides of the ship. It didn't open up in front like the, la- the uh, landing ship LSTs and the L- LSIs that took the assault troops in. And uh, it was room to move around. Uh, I can remember reading a book on board ship, and I finished the whole thing during that one night. It was called The Song of Bernadette, and uh, that kept my mind a little bit off what we were going to the face. Then when the 6th of June dawned, at dawn I'm talking about, the sight that greeted our eyes, because we had a real grandstand seat for this whole show that was about to start, I've never seen as many ships, large and small in my life, in one small area of the world as I saw that day. It was so impressive. And just about at dawn, the battleships started open up, firing on the beach. And that's about when the 116th started in. And we could see all of this. We could see the trouble that they were having. And we were wondering, oh boy, are we going to have to follow them in and, and get pinned down the way they were initially? And then the decision came that we would not follow them in. We would swing to the left and go in behind the 1st Division, which we were all attached to at that time, uh, and go in that way and come around and see if we could release leave some of the pressure on the 116th. We were able to do this. We, were, we took the town of San Laurent samar just about a few hours after we landed. And the 115th received a presidential unit citation for our actions on getting on the beach, coming around, and helping the 116th. Well, I don't think any 4th of July fireworks uh, display I've seen since then can can compare in sound. It was tremendously noisy. It was one round after another going off from any variety of different weapons that we had and uh, it was impressive i I just it was awesome in every way just to see the power that we were bringing in to a, a relatively small place in this world I've never seen anything since then that can compare with it until i saw the longest day the movie and that didn't quite capture the whole noise that went on at that time i don't think we'll see it again either i hope not when we started to move in we started to get some shells all around us and uh, luckily this navy guy was able to maneuver that little craft and get us in almost dry as he said he would well, then we disembarked each platoon one following the other, a couple, one over here, one two up and one back was the usual uh, formation. And we had to be very careful, even though the 1st Division had moved through the area that we are in, of mines. And uh, we, we had mine detector people with us, and they led us up to the hill coming up from the beach. And that uh, we lost one or two people to mines going up, and that was a gruesome sight. And then we got up to the top, and uh, we ran into some resistance at, from this town of San Lorenzo. but we overcame that, and we occupied the town, and that's where we spent the first night. Did you, uh, did you encounter the enemy? Yes. And uh, we brought a lot of rifle fire against them. We, all our weapons were dry. A lot of the trouble with 116th, they landed in the water, and they couldn't some of them couldn't use their weapons when they first landed. We didn't have that trouble, so we were able to... I had a carbine, our our troops had uh, M1 rifles at the time, and uh, we did some shooting, both on the way up and going into the town.
0: During the invasion, Al was just 21 years old, a boy thrust into a position of immense responsibility.
1: Well, uh, we had been well-trained at the infantry school down at Fort Benning, and, uh, and be- I became one of what they called a 90-day wonder, because the course landed, uh, lasted 90 days. Uh, and from the time I put those bars on, I knew I had a lot more responsibility than any time I had had previously in my life. And then when I had taken people into combat at that age, I knew I had an awesome responsibility. In the back of my mind was the fact that if we could succeed in what we were doing, this would mean the start of the end of World War II. And I felt the weight of that responsibility on my shoulders. But as I say, a training, where you train to lead, helped immensely.
2: Did unit uh, crack up or, or, or just kind of freak out that knowing that this is? This,
1: there's no turning back? Or... Only, only one of my platoon sergeants. He started, uh, I could see him coming apart, and I was wondering what would happen to him when we hit the beach. And uh, sure enough, when we hit the beach and I looked around, he had disappeared. I don't know if he got back on the boat. I never heard what had happened, whether he got hit while he was standing there and somebody moved him. I never, found, Nobody could tell me what had happened to this platoon sergeant. He was the only one, and he was key, he was my first assistant. And uh, I quickly appointed somebody else and we went off from there, and that was a pattern throughout all the 29th Division's history in World War II. You'd have a company commander or a platoon sergeant or a platoon leader one day and the next day you wouldn't and you had to improvise real quick and that's where cross-training and leadership training that we had enabled a lot of our people to move up some of them got battlefield commissions and uh, that's the way the system worked well in that interval was this constant naval bombardment and it wasn't uh, it was having some effect, but it wasn't until a line of destroyers came marching through and got in front of the battleships and were in close enough to see these pillboxes that were peppering the 116th and some of the 88s that were up further on the hill, uh, and they started to knock those out, and that saved the day when those destroyers moved in. And we could see that, But uh, then at that time the decision was made to commit us Right, when the destroyers went in to come in around from the other side, they were shelling still shelling into the one sixteenth area when we came ashore. Ours was quiet from the standpoint of getting any gun support. Well, we had navy uh observers with us, and when we got up off the beach up to the top of the escarpment there, they called in fire against San Loren and other places where where we were getting uh some small arms fire from, and that helped us take the town of St. Laurent. Our own artillery was struggling to stay with us at that time.
2: Did uh, anybody in your, did you lose anybody in your
1: unit? I lost uh, seven people going up the hill towards St. Laurent out of a 40-man platoon, which was light compared to some of the casualties that the 116th suffered.
2: And how, how did you increase?
1: Small arms fire, people wounded, I had two men killed, five men wounded. The evacuation system of our medics worked well. They got them back down to the beach and off to a hospital in England as fast as they could. Get, getting us on the beach was just one part of the whole operation. The other part was take off casualties. They had one hospital ship out there and they'd move them to the hospital ship and then eventually uh, back to England to, to the hospitals. Our our medics were trained to work with us. If a man was wounded, we just yelled, Medic, and they would go up. They had their red crosses on their helmets. Supposedly the Germans were supposed to respect that. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. There they did. We didn't have any trouble with our medics getting hurt. The one thing that we were not prepared for was the hedgerow country, what they call the Bocage country of, of Normandy. Uh, nobody had told us about, in my regiment anyway, I don't know if the other regiments had been told anything different, about these terrible hedgerows. Hedgerows were made over a course of hundreds of years of rocks being piled up and then planting on top and then more rocks. And uh, eventually they became like little walled fortresses, each hedgerow. And trying to fight our way through those, we lost an awful lot of people. A lot of people killed and wounded. And it wasn't until a smart sergeant, an engineer, came up with the idea of putting a blade-type apparatus on the front of tanks and bulldozers and cut through those hedgerows with this blade that would cut through pretty quick, and then the tank, then the blade would come through and punch a pretty good-sized hole. Until that happened, we were having very, very slow progress from one hedgerow to the next. And that, that was the big surprise because we had not been told anything about that. The, the only good thing that was happening there, the French who were hiding in their cellars and so forth, as we secured one field, they'd come out and with their calvados and their, their bread, and we thought the people were starving in France. That was the other big surprise. And we, hit the, we started to hit these uh, Norman villages, and they'd come out with all kinds of stuff. And then it dawned on me that This was the breadbasket of France. This is where where the food was supposed to go into Paris and the other big cities, but they couldn't get it out of there. So we enjoyed some of it. We learned to drink Calvados and we learned to cook with it. It makes wonderful uh, benzene. You light it and you put your canteen cup over it and you had a nice hot cup of
0: coffee in short order. The American soldiers knew the German troops were excellent war fighters.
1: We had respect for them. We knew they were good fighters, tough fighters, as tough as we were. And uh, we had a lot of respect and we treated them with respect after we took them prisoners, except in uh, maybe one or two cases where these events had happened where suddenly a guy jumped up and killed somebody. And then we were a little less respectful. But, uh, yes, we, we we knew they were good fighting people. We respected them for that. Uh, at this time in a, in our battle into France, we didn't know anything about what was happening with concentration camps or any of that stuff. We, we didn't learn of this until much later, so that we had respect for them as fighting men. Now, one of the things that happened in our area of the beach, the 352nd Infantry Division of the German Army, suddenly appeared on the scene. They weren't supposed to be there, and suddenly they were there, they were on tra- in training along the beach. And that made the fighting a lot tougher, and that brought in a lot more German soldier strength than what should have been there, according to our own intelligence. German resistance was very, very heavy on D-Day, in all areas. In their area especially, a little bit lighter in the First Division's area, and. Uh, got heavy again after we get up off the beach. It was very heavy. Their main shells that they fired us was called the 88s, which was a high-velocity weapon, and they were giving us all kinds of fits until we were able to, some were knocked out by naval gunfire. We didn't have, I don't remember much in the way of Army Air Corps support that day. They had come in early and bombed, but they bombed beyond the beach. so that uh, it was mostly Navy and our own artillery support to help out. Our tanks didn't get in until a little bit later on D-Day. They didn't get in initially in our sector.
2: Also were you part of the the breakout then,
1: I imagine? We were part of the breakout. Uh, The objective for D-Day and up to D plus two but to be far enough inland to take the town of Saint-Lô, which is the capital of the whole Normandy area, and uh, we didn't get there until what was the 18th of July, which was a long time after D plus two. I had been wounded in the meantime and flown back to England, and I got back just in time for the fall of San lo When that happened, we then the breakout of Patton's army. After a massive air attack, I mean, I saw more planes come over in one day, in one morning than I ever seen in my life, of bombing, 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 and then the tanks roared through us, and we were supposed to have a little bit of rest. We've been fighting from the beaches up through Saint Lo, and uh, we thought we we're going to have a little rest. We, I think, we had a day, and they turned us to go down to take the port of Sher- of uh, Brest,
0: and that's another story. The key port the Allied forces hoped to capture and put into service was Brest in Northwest France.
1: That became almost as tough a fight as taking uh, the beachhead. And Brest was the home of the uh, submarine fleet of the German Navy, the U-boat. And uh, we we lost almost as many people in the whole division, some 7,000, at Brest as we did on the beaches. So it was a tough fight down there, too. And uh, I just happened to be lucky. We the, the battle had been going on for a while. And there was one hill that was the key to the defenses of Brest. And we were given the mission of taking that hill. And as I was going up to the, my battalion headquarters to find out uh, the attack order and everything else. As I was going up, I met a young captain. Uh, by this time I was a first lieutenant, incidentally. Uh, I said, are you lost? He said, I'm a heavy mortar company commander. Now, Those were bigger mortars than anything we had in the battalion or in the regiment. And I said, come with me. So I took him up to the battalion, I introduced him, and I said, I want this guy to support my company going up that hill. And he started lobbing these heavy mortars, both high explosive and smoke, onto the top of the hill. And we just walked up the hill, and we got up there. The Germans were surprised to see us. We took the hill, and that was the end of the Battle of Brest.
2: Did you take prisoners?
1: Oh, yeah, a lot of them that day.
2: What was it like uh, taking prisoners?
1: Uh, we'd take them, we'd disarm them, uh, and then we took one or two men with rifles and marched them to a collecting point a little behind where we were. And then I don't know what happened to them there. I think most of them ended up back in the States.
2: Uh, what was it like uh, coming face-to-face with them? I mean, do you remember the first time you came face-to-face? With the fir-
1: first time I came fir- face-to-face was on a beach at Normandy or just off the beach. We've been told to watch out for Germans playing dead that would suddenly jump up and throw a grenade at you. And so when we came across this one, it was leaning against a tree. And he didn't look dead to us, so we just filled him full of lead, and then he was really dead. So that was the first one I'd seen. And then taking the town of Saint-Lorraine, we took some prisoners there, and that was the first time I saw them live, really live. And then at Brest we took a lot of prisoners, a lot, a lot of prisoners.
2: When uh, when you said that the objective was to take St. Lo in two days, doesn't that seem a little far-fetched? And was it the hedgerows that, that, that kept you from making the objective?
1: In, in my opinion, there may have been many other factors, but it was the hedgerows that slowed us down considerably and the fact that that 352nd Infantry Division was in the area that uh, nobody expected to be there. Those two factors, I think, are, were the main thing, but the hedgerows more than the, these extra troops, in my opinion. If if there was a place we could have landed that didn't have the hedgerows, it, it we might have gotten to St. Louis a lot quicker.
2: And also, t- tell us about the, what, what the, when you were injured, what did, what is it like to be hit and what, what went through
1: your mind and where were you hit and things like that? We were in the attack phase towards St. Lo at the time and we were along this road and suddenly some incoming mortar fire came in and hit some of my people and we kept going and then I got hit in the arm and in my leg with the mortar fragments and uh, then I went through the evacuation system of a medic taking me back to battalion, and then to regiment, and then over to England. And I was there for three weeks in the hospital. I still got that shrapnel in my arm, my leg. doctor says, we don't take it out, we just leave it in there. I said, what's going to do, melt? And they said, no, but uh, it's more dangerous to take it out than leave it in. But it doesn't bother me now. I carry the wounds of, of World War II. Uh, I, I had two Purple Hearts uh, awarded to me, and for that, day, and then the, the day I came back, I got hit again, just a grazing wound along the side of my rib cage here, so they just slapped the bandage on it, and I stayed right where I was. But uh, the feeling initially was a little bit of relief, that, uh, oh boy, I hear I'm not dead and I'm going back, uh, maybe I'll get through this thing alive in the long run, but on the other hand, it was a little disappointment, because I didn't want to leave my platoon and company. I was back in three weeks and uh, I think my promotion of first lieutenant had come through in the meantime and instead of going back to my own company, L company, they put me in I company as the executive officer of the company and uh, I stayed with I company commanding it or being executive officer. Company commanders were very expendable in those days.
0: Hungerleiter and his men continued their march towards Berlin. Along the way, they encountered a horrifying sight. Just
1: two weeks before the uh, war ended, as we were marching rapidly towards the Elbe River to hook up with the Russians, uh, we were coming down this road, and we started getting some fire from what looked like two small uh, towers uh, up in the distance. So... I deployed my people off the road, we had a couple of tanks with us, and I brought them up and I told them to see if they could knock out those towers, which they did. So then we let the tanks go first and we came in behind them, and the tanks swung in and crashed through the gates of what turned out to be a small concentration camp, a slave labor camp that uh, was a sub-camp of uh, the big camp at Nordhausen, and this camp, Laborers were making some of the missiles that were being shot at England and uh, wherever else they thought they might be able to shoot them. The sight that hit us when we got inside that camp is just stamped into my brain more so than D-Day or more so than anything else, the horror that we saw there. And uh, just unbelievable to see the condition of these people that we had come across, and they, did, they didn't know what was happening at first until we started to assure them that we were friendly and uh, not German. We deployed throughout this camp. Uh, we captured some SS troopers. Uh, my radio, My runner and I went into a building that was a crematorium, and we started to open the doors of each of the furnaces, and I told my runner to be on the alert that there could be somebody hiding in one of these furnaces. We didn't know what we'd find. and We opened one door, and then another door, and then another door, and all empty, and then I just had a hunch. We came to this one door, I said, be ready. And I opened the door and I stepped back and there was a German squatting in there with a pistol in his hand and my runner just opened up and emptied out a whole clip from his M1 rifle and killed this guy. The rest of my company was deployed going around the camp and captured some more of these SS troopers. Then we came back and the people started coming out of their barracks. And then the true horror of it hit us. You never saw people in as emaciated condition in your life as what we saw that day. Someone could hardly walk. We looked into some of the barracks and the filth was just would turn your stomach. Finally, we started talking to these people. We told them who we were. We tried to converse in English and German and Yiddish, whatever uh, we could, and then they finally realized who we were. I told my men to break out any rations that they had and give them to these people. We also had some wine with us that we had liberated along the way, and we gave them that. Some of them started to eat this food, and they keeled right over. They hadn't seen anything. So I started talking to these people. I told them I was from Pennsylvania, and they all had relatives in Philadelphia. And uh, we got along fine. Then I finally, I got on my radio, and I told the battalion commander what we had come across. And he says, sit tight until I can get a military government team in there who were trained to handle a situation like this. And as soon as they get there and take over, move out. We stayed in the camp for a maximum of two hours and we had all these prisoners under guard by a couple of our troopers and when the military government people arrived there we just turned them over to them. And again, they started their process of moving prisoners wherever they moved them to. But most of these had the SS insignia on their caps and on their uniforms. These were SS troopers. They were scared, They were they were actually shaking, they were so scared evidently wondering what was going to happen to them if they were going to be treated differently than other prisoners of war or not our unit helped liberate this group of of slave laborers and captured some of their guards at the same time and uh, it's uh, as i say it's an experience that uh, i never want to go through again
2: when you had some conversations with those prisoners what how did they? You, you must have been
1: the uh, like angels. Them. They they were hugging us. They were they, they just couldn't believe, and I just kept telling them, "You're now free." But uh, that's a day in my life that uh, I still have nightmares every once in a while what I saw that day. And have, you,
2: have you ever talked to any of those prisoners? Or have any of them ever looked
1: you up? After? No, I've been looking for them. Because I went back, to, I, I stayed in Germany after the war was over uh, in the Army of Occupation, and then I went back again in 1947. And they had a lot of displaced persons camps around the Frankfurt, Germany area. And I used to go to those camps with a friend of mine and uh, actually asking or just letting them see me and see if any of them would step forward. And they didn't. Uh, the only other time I thought there might be a possibility. I was assigned to Paraguay as the armor advisor to the Republic of Paraguay in 1959, and there was a large Jewish community there. Paraguay was one of the few countries that allowed refugees from Hitler to come in. And by that time, in 1959, their surviving families had joined them in Paraguay. And again, I went around seeing if any of them would know me or I, could, I don't think I could recognize any of them, and I, again, I couldn't. So you stayed on in the service, Korea
2: and Vietnam. Can you tell us a little bit about, about Vietnam?
1: I was assigned to Vietnam in uh, June of 1969 from my job in the office of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon. And at that time, I was a colonel, U.S. Army regular. I was assigned to Vietnam, and I was assigned to 2nd Field Force. Uh, <clears throat> on my assignment to 2nd Field Forces in Vietnam, uh, they were in the Long Bin, Benoit area, and I was given the task of assigning, of being assigned to commander of what they called the Benoit Tactical Area Command. Uh, my mission was to protect the Long Binh supply depot, which was a huge complex along the coast there, uh, mainly from incoming rocket attacks, which was the main Viet Cong and North Vietnamese way of hitting the supply base. I, uh, when we first got there, I also had the mission of training Vietnam combat soldiers to take over this task uh, as soon as they could. So I was there for four months total. During the first month, the rockets were incoming every night and doing a lot of damage to the long supply base. Finally, I heard that the 2nd Field Force commander had a long-range reconnaissance company, and I knew their skills of stealth and being able to operate in the dark and so on. So I asked for that company to be assigned to my command for as long as I needed them. He gave them to me. I went out with them. We deployed. We set up uh, traps along various trails that we knew the Viet Cong were using. And that company was successful. Those soldiers did a tremendous job in killing a lot of the Viet Cong that were coming down the trails. Some of them with rocket launchers in their hands and ready to set up and others. And one that they killed when we took the papers off this uh, dead soldier. Uh, I'm not sure whether he was Viet Cong or North Vietnam, uh, regular, but he was cited as being one of the top men, rocketeers in the whole North Vietnamese Army. Uh, strangely enough, we hit the right man, because from that day on, for the next 50 days, not a single rocket fell on the Long Bin Complex. Of course, I got a lot of compliments about it, but it was that long-range reconnaissance, those soldiers, those infantry soldiers, who really did the job, and I was very grateful to General Julian Ewell, who was commanding 2nd Field Forces at that time. Uh, As an aside, that company was the only National Guard company to be assigned to Vietnam, and they were from the state of Indiana, and they were good. They were really good.
2: Maybe give people a a sense of, what it was like at nighttime. Why, why time. Uh, why couldn't people sleep soundly?
1: The reason we couldn't sleep soundly was because of this incoming rocket fire. These were very rudimentary uh, weapons that they were able to put a rocket in and pull some kind of trigger, and off it went. And they were very accurate. And every night for that first 30 days I was there, there was incoming uh, rocket fire. Sometimes just one or two a night. Others, times it might be 10, 12 a night. Uh, They varied it, and it might not be every night. They may have left off a night here or there. But generally, it was difficult sleeping at night. A lot lot of us slept more in the daytime than we did at night over there. And uh, as I said before, this ability that this long-range reconnaissance company had put a stop to this for a good long while.
2: But uh, throughout Vietnam, this was a common story. What what, what was the, uh, why were they able to get so close and to, to do this? What, what well, well in, the,
1: in the jungles that surrounded Long Binh, even though it was a big supply complex along the coast, mm-hmm. you didn't have to go very far to be in the jungles again. And trying to pick up everybody that was coming through those jungles at night was a very difficult task. But we were successful, maybe just lucky, that we were in the right place at the right time, and and killing off some of these people that uh, were doing most of the shelling. After I finished this uh, assignment and had the Vietnamese trained to take over the Benoit Tactical Area Command, I was then assigned as uh, the Deputy Senior Advisor to the I Corps uh, Senior Advisor. Our job was to train the advisory force that was out with every Vietnam, uh, South Vietnam unit. And uh, I had the auxiliary task at that time to provide adequate housing for them wherever they were. And this we uh, set out to do. That was the main task. An auxiliary task that ties into the Vietnamization A series of orphanages were in the Da Nang area, which is one of the biggest cities in Vietnam. And I became interested in one of the orphanages, and we made sure that we provided them with everything that we could provide from the advisory level, food, toys, uh, whatever. We were written up in Reader's Digest at that time of doing something good in Vietnam, and it was a very heartwarming experience, that section of it. The Vietnamization was to uh, get the advisors to train the Vietnam Army so that we could uh, reduce our force. It never came to that. Uh, it, never, it wasn't successful in total because uh, we moved out of there running in 1973-74 uh, without fully ever completing the Vietnamization process. It was a tough Tough thing to do, because uh, in my opinion, uh, some of the politicians back here were trying to run a war right down at a squad level, and you can 't do that that's that 's not good for military operations you 've got to give the field commanders wide latitude in making decisions and where to go, what to hit, when to hit it, and this was not possible during a good part of the time in Vietnam. I just uh, want to, again, praise every soldier that was over there. They did their jobs well, 99% of them. Uh, same with the officers. But uh, they all deserve a lot of credit for having been there. I think they deserve a lot of credit uh, back here in the States, those that, that were immediately successful moving back into what they were doing before. I have a great deal of sympathy for those who are having a tough time afterward, and I hope... As time goes on, that wound will be healed for them. And let's hope we don't get involved in any more Vietnam.
2: I'm Alison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast.
0: We interviewed Al Ungerleiter during the 50th anniversary of D-Day.
2: How often do you think
1: about D-Day? Well, this year I think about it just about every day. 1994 is the 50th anniversary of our landing in D-Day. There's going to be millions of people going over to try to be on the beach on the 6th of June this year. Uh, We're going over as part of the 29th Division Association, some 460 of us. Uh, veterans and their families. And uh, we're looking forward to this occasion. And uh, we're looking forward to it as a big day. We're going over a little earlier, and we'll show our families all the battlefield sites that we participated in in the Normandy area. And the French are eagerly awaiting our arrival. Uh, They want to wine and dine us. They want to show us their appreciation for us liberating them back in 1944. And that'll be nice. We're looking forward to that.
2: What I've heard is that over in France, almost every little town has some type of monument set up to the people that, that liberated their, their town. What, uh, any, any recollections of, of how relieved they were to see you coming? I mean, was it almost like a welcoming committee from town to
1: town? Or? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the farmers would come out of their houses and, and offer us something to eat and something to drink. And they were very appreciative of us at that time. Uh, we went back in 1988 to dedicate a monument uh, on a beach that the uh, 116th landed on, the 29th Division Monument. And <clears throat> the people of Vierville-Samir, which is the town that the uh, 116th liberated on D-Day, uh, wined and dined us at that time and showed a, a tremendous amount of appreciation. But then the biggest thrill to me, we went to San Lo. And we had leveled that city in 1944. I mean, we had compl- almost obliterated it. And here it was, 1988, and it was rebuilt. Everything was back as best they could put it back. And the mayor of the town had a big reception for us, and everybody was just oohing and on over us of, of being there and coming back. And then they took us to the Franco-American Hospital just outside of San Lo. And what was so pleasing to me, as we walked through the corridors of the hospital, almost every door had a 29th Division insignia on it. And that came about because our association heard about this project of rebuilding the hospital, and they sent over a lot of money. The wards, the operating rooms, all 29th. And then as a climax to our day in St. Lowe, they took us into this big hall, and they had every kind of French pastry in the world on this table with a bottle of champagne every couple of feet. And they were just being thankful to us for what we did back in 1944. We thought they they would resent us because what we had done to their town. But they were glad to see us and, and loving us for coming back to, to be with them again.
2: Why should uh, young people who a lot of them have no? Days maybe a question on their history cast and then nothing more. Why should they? Why should they even care about
1: it? Well, in my opinion, they should care because uh, D-Day began the downfall of Hitler, the final stage of the downfall of Hitler. A phase in our history that uh, was one of the most horrible of any phase in our history, particularly in regards to what he was doing to other people, not only Jewish people, but gypsies, uh, masons, uh, anybody in opposition to them, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of these people were just killed for no apparent reason, even though at the time we were there, we didn't know. But it we began a process on that day that saved a lot of people's lives in the long run. And uh, it was a lot of responsibility for people our age. However, I hope the 21s and 20s and teenagers of, of today don't ever have to go through anything like that. And I hope that what we did that at that time will see to it that they don't have to go through it again. We never know. There's always some nut that can come along in this world that'll try to be another Hitler. But uh, what we did that day should never be forgotten. And uh, we're trying to keep that memory alive both through our 29th Division Association, but more so there's a Battle of Normandy foundation now that brings young college students over to France, puts them up in a castle. They have really plush facilities. These are university students. They teach them about the Battle of Normandy, then they take them around and show them all the Battle of Normandy. Then they take them to all the other places in Germany, including some of the concentration camps, and we've had letters from these young people telling us that they will never forget what we did there. And that, I think, is the important lesson that people don't forget because it started the end of something evil in this world.
0: Brigadier General Al Ungerleiter retired from the Army after 36 years of service. His final active duty assignment was commanding the Aberdeen Proving Ground in Maryland. He passed away in 2011 at the age of 89. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Warriors in Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by The Honor Project, heroes of our nation on record. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by Heroes of Our Nation on Record Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws.
3: Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.